Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus issues this bracing warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These words by Jesus have caused many a troubled Christian soul over the centuries. They make admittance into the kingdom sound like a crapshoot. How can one ever know where one stands with Jesus? But elsewhere, the Bible speaks with great assurance to all those who believe in Jesus. For example, the Apostle John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. How does the assurance of these and many other words fit together with Jesus' warning? It comes down to the biblical meaning of believing. The first step in believing in Jesus is making sure you have the right Jesus. If I ask you if you know John Smith, and you say, yes, John Smith the butcher, and I say, no, John Smith the baker, it's clear we have two different John Smiths. In the first century, and still today, there are lots of Jesuses out there. There's Jesus the great man, Jesus the great teacher, Jesus the great moral example, there's Jesus the prophet, there's even Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Son of God, and Jesus the Lord. But as the real Jesus makes clear in our text, all these terms and titles can be infused with different meanings to suit the user. Believing in the real Jesus means not believing in the Jesus we want him to be, but believing in the Jesus he revealed himself to be. And that would be Jesus Emmanuel. God with us, Jesus the eternal Son and Word made flesh, born of a virgin, Jesus through whom the worlds were made, and who as the God-man is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, containing all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Jesus who lived the life we were created to live, in perfect faith, love, and obedience to the Father, who as part of that faith, love, and obedience allowed himself to be framed and put on a Roman cross, thus heaping upon himself all the blackness of evil and all the worst that fallen men could do, all to break the power of death and sin over us, to bring us home to the Father, to make us his sons and daughters, princes and princesses, joint heirs with Christ of heaven and earth. Jesus, whom the Father vindicated by raising him from the dead, thus declaring that he is the Son of God. Jesus, who ascended into heaven and was given all power and authority in heaven and on earth, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's the Jesus we are called upon to believe in, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved.
If you have any other Jesus, you have the wrong Jesus. If you believe in any other Jesus, your faith is worthless. If you're calling any other Jesus Lord, you're wasting your breath. If you're serving any other Jesus, you're wasting your life. The second part of believing in Jesus is trusting in Him, casting yourself upon Him. That's the biblical idea of faith. Mere intellectual assent is not sufficient, for one can give assent without having a relationship. But one cannot entrust your whole self to someone without having a personal relationship. And as Jesus makes clear, it is a relationship with Him, knowing and being known by Him, that is determinative. Knowing Jesus and being known by Him, that's the center of the Christian life. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This is the Word of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let us pray. God and Father, we pray now that by the Spirit you would teach us these words, bring them home to us, that we would heed your words, be your true people, bear your true light to the world, to the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount with four warnings, of which our text today is the third, and all four are connected and they build on one another. First, he warned, enter by the narrow gate, not by the wide gate where all the first century uh, throngs were going. Secondly, he said, beware of false prophets who were perverting the gospel and leading away from Christ. And he says that you judge prophets the same way you judge disciples, the same way you judge the true people of God, by their fruit. And today he says, be warned that in the chaos and confusion of the first century, many will come up with their own criteria for entrance into the kingdom of heaven and will be shocked when they are carried away in judgment. Now, these words of Jesus that we're considering today have caused a lot of confusion, a lot of heartache, and a lot of misapplication over the last 2,000 years. Many Christians have read uh, these verses who are of tender heart, and many Christians still do the same today, and concluded, you can never know if you're a Christian. You can never know if you're saved. You can never know if you're one of God's children, if these words are true. You can never know if you're going to be accepted or rejected by God on the last day. You can never really know where you stand. And this has led to an unbiblical form of introspection, whereby sincere Christians have Uh, have strained themselves and racked themselves seeking to produce the right kind of experience and the right kind of feelings within them. And it's led to an unbiblical form of serving God where Christians are continually asking themselves, have I done enough? Have I done enough? All trying to gain some kind of modicum of assurance of their relationship with Christ and with God. Now, we should note that the Bible gives us much assurance. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, 
These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The Apostle John and the Scriptures as a whole want us to know whether we have eternal life or not. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he said that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up as the serpent was in the desert, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus assured Nicodemus and us that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. He said himself, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the Bible gives us much assurance. And yet in our text, Jesus refers to many self-deceived people. How do these things fit together? How does assurance that the Bible talks about fit together with this kind of self-deception that Jesus speaks of in our text? Now... This confusion points to the importance of reading any biblical text in context. And that means we need to read it in terms of its biblical context, and we also need to read it in terms of its historical context. In other words, what was going on in God's plan of redemption uh, at the time. Well, this text is about judgment. And the Bible tells us, and the church has confessed throughout the centuries, that all people will be judged on the last day, and further, that they will be judged by Jesus Christ, to whom the Father has committed all judgment, and to whom he has given all power and authority. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. And one of the things that stands out about our text is Jesus is the judge here. Jesus is the one who is pronouncing who is admitted to the kingdom of heaven and who is sent away in judgment. Now, in addition to judgment, final judgment on the last day, the Bible also tells us that God judges in history. In other words, he judges before the last day in history. God judges individuals. He lets people reap what they sow, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. God judges people uh, for their wickedness. He gives people over to their sin. And he also judges people collectively, cities or nations. Uh, For example, when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, or when he judged ancient Egypt, bringing destruction on them. And of course, all these temporal or historical judgments uh, anticipate and, in a sense, foreshadow the final judgment on the last day. Uh, In addition to that, there are, the Bible tells us, punctuated times, punctuated points in history when God judges his own people by bringing the issues of life and the issues of eternal life to a head. So that in history, prior to the last day, there is a sorting out. There's a sorting out of the wheat from the chaff. There is a sorting out of the sheep from the goats. And a judging that anticipates to a high degree the final judgment on the last day. Now, an Old Testament example of this would be when God brought judgment 
on his people Israel in, by the hands of the Babylonians, and you find a, an account of that in the book of Jeremiah. Now, in that time, the Jewish leaders and most of the people, they knew they were in trouble. They knew they had a lot of problems, but they believed that their fundamental problems centered around politics, economics, national security, foreign relations, and there were many false prophets in that day claiming to be patriots and lovers of God, servers of God's will, who encouraged Israel in this particular view. Now, on the other hand, you had Jeremiah, who was the true prophet, the true man of God, and, as it turns out, the true patriot, who told Israel that she was the problem that her fundamental issues were not political, economic, foreign relations, or national security, but her fundamental problems had to do with her relationship with her God. And that she had turned away from her God in her heart. She was not drawing near to him in her heart. And as a result of this fundamental lack of God, I mean lack of relationship with her God, there were many other manifestations of sins that were showing up both socially and in terms of individual lives. And so Jeremiah was, in a sense, saying, take a look in a mirror, take a look at the enemy, because he is us. We are the enemy. And therefore, the uh, call of the day, the great need of the day, is repentance. Now, things would come to the head in Jeremiah's day when the leadership would end up gathering around the temple in Jerusalem as a national symbol, seeking to force God, as it were, to rise up and to deliver them from the hand of the Babylonians. Their thinking was that God will have to save us. We're his people. He will have to save his temple. Now, Jeremiah knew that the leadership was not using the temple as what it was intended to be the place of meeting with God, of worshiping God, of serving the one true God. Rather, they were using it as a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It was kind of an ancient form of my country, right or wrong. In other words, the temple had become an idol and the people idolaters. Now, Jeremiah warned the people not to trust in the temple. He said to them, do not say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, because this had become the mantra, the temple of the Lord. God will protect his temple. And so we gather there. Instead, Jeremiah told them to repent and to turn to God. He warned them if they persisted in their current path, God was going to destroy them. And he was going to destroy their precious idol, the temple, even though the temple was God's idea. That doesn't prevent it from being turned into an idol. And he told them that he was going to destroy all this at the hands of the pagan Babylonians. The Jews couldn't get over the fact that they were better than the Babylonians. Compared to them, on a relative scale, Lord, we're much better than they are. So you have to bless us. They forget the central fact, though, that they're God's children. Any good parent is not satisfied with whether their children are better than the kids down the block. They're only satisfied when their kids are actually good, when their kids are actually living life as they should. And so that's the way God has always dealt with his own children. And that's why, as it says in Peter, judgment always begins with the house of God because any good parent always begins with their children first. 
And that's what God does. And so it's according to the ways of God exactly that he would judge his disobedient, unfaithful, unloving children by the hands of people a lot worse, by the hands of the Babylonians. Now, that is exactly what would end up happening when Nebuchadnezzar and his armies would breach the walls of Jerusalem, would destroy the city and destroy the temple. Now, imagine the shock of all of these leaders and all these people who have rallied to the temple and said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, this is God's temple. This is the God who has destroyed Egypt and he will defend his temple. Imagine their shock when the Babylonian armies breach the walls and begin killing and raping and pillaging and plundering. And they destroy the city and they destroy the temple. That is the kind of shock that Jesus is talking about in our text here about those who think they're the true people and that God's going to rise up on their behalf. And actually they end up being carried away in judgment. Now leading up to this climax, there was a time of great chaos and confusion. Jeremiah has been speaking the truth, but there are many false prophets who are contradicting him, who are calling him a liar, who are calling him... uh, not a servant of God, but somebody who was opposed to God. They're calling him an enemy of God and of God's people. And there were in that day many people who thought they were serving God by throwing Jeremiah in the dungeon. Now remember that one of the things that Jesus says to his disciples, is they're going to be those who think they're doing God a service when they kill you. He tells them that specifically. Same thing was going on in Jeremiah's day. And the people who are going to be persecuting Jeremiah and contradicting him, they're going to do what they do in God's name, in the name of God. And they're going to think that they're serving God, but they weren't. And they will learn the truth in a shocking way when God rejects them and has them carried away in judgment. And meantime, he vindicates Jeremiah. He vindicates and preserves Jeremiah and those who are associated with Jeremiah. Now, this whole scenario would repeat itself again in the first century, except it's going to be greatly intensified. Instead of Jeremiah, God sent his people, the great Jeremiah, Jesus, not just a prophet, but the prophet, the sum and perfection of all the prophets and of all prophecy. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, made flesh. And the issues were brought to a head, and Jeremiah's day would now be brought to a final head, a final showdown within Israel. Who or what is the true temple of God? And remember what the temple was in the Old Testament. The temple was where heaven and earth meet. It's where God meets with man. It's where man is restored to God. It's where man worships God and communes with him and is blessed by him. Who or what is the true temple? Is it a building in Jerusalem? Or is it Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us? Now you remember Matthew has set up this issue right from the very beginning of his gospel. When it has the kings of the earth, the wise men traveling, not to Jerusalem to worship God, but to Bethlehem. 
And the glory of God, the glory cloud, rests not over the temple in Jerusalem, but over the house where Jesus the lad was in Bethlehem. And so you see the issue right there, who or what is the true temple of God. And that is coming to a head now. Second issue, who are the true people of God? Is it ethnic Jews who trust in their bloodline? Or is it all those who trust in Jesus and who worship God in spirit and in truth? And finally, what is the true kingdom of God? Is it a nationalistic Jewish ethnic regime imposed on an unwilling world like the Roman Empire and all the other kingdoms of man before it? Or is it the reign of Christ over a spirit-transformed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation? These issues are all coming to a head in the first century. And this 40-year period between Jesus' ascension and his judgment on apostate Jerusalem is the time when all of this is reaching a climax. And Jesus is here preparing his disciples for the roller coaster ride that would be the first century. Jesus wants them to know that just as many thought they were serving God in Jeremiah's day when they were actually fighting God, so it will be again. Just as many did great deeds in God's name in Jeremiah's day and prophesied in God's name in Jeremiah's day when they were actually opposing God's name, so it will be again. And just as many called God Lord, Lord in Jeremiah's day and were shocked when God cast them off in judgment, so it will be again. Now in Jeremiah's day, truly serving God, truly acting in God's name, Truly walking consistent with the kingdom meant believing God's word through the true prophet Jeremiah. It meant being part of Jeremiah's fellowship. It meant actually doing God's will instead of just talking about it. And God's will was God's word as exposited and applied by the true prophet Jeremiah. In Jesus' day, all that has been intensified to a final form. For Jesus is the one whom Jeremiah foreshadowed. Jesus is the capstone of all the prophets. He's the perfect revelation and the complete revelation. He is God in the flesh. And Jesus has now inaugurated the kingdom in his death, resurrection, and ascension. The kingdom is no longer anticipatory, a shadow pointing to a future reality. Now the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. Daniel's great stone that God gave a vision of to Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't give that vision to Daniel. He didn't give that vision to his prophet. He gave that vision to the most powerful man in the world, a pagan named Nebuchadnezzar. He said, there's a stone, there's a little stone that's going to break into this world and it's going to grow and it's going to turn all the kingdoms of this world to chaff and it's going to fill the world like a great mountain. Well, Peter speaks to us in those terms in his epistles. He says, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the stone that has come into the world. But we all as living stones by the Spirit are being added to him and being built into the true temple of God. The kingdom is here in Jesus Christ. And entering the kingdom does not mean going to heaven. Though the eternal life of heaven is part of the kingdom. 
the thrust and the locust and the, uh, the direction of the kingdom is from heaven to earth, not from earth to heaven. So Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come. Well, what does that mean? Well, what that means is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the direction of the kingdom is always in the Bible from heaven to earth. So the kingdom means willingly coming under God's rule through Jesus Christ. It means gladly confessing, not confessing at the point of a gun, not confessing under torture, not confessing under compunction. It means willingly and gladly confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And out of love and loyalty, bowing the knee to Jesus. That's the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. And Paul describes in his own life what it means to gladly own Christ as Lord and bow the knee to him. He says what it means is all that you have, all that you think you have, you lay that aside in favor of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said. He said, all I thought I had, all I did have, he said, I've counted that all as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Bowing the knee to King Jesus, that is what entering the kingdom means. It means becoming one of the living stones who's being added to the cornerstone Christ so that you become part of the living temple of God. In our text, Jesus talks to us about the criteria for entering the kingdom. So let's look at those because although we're not living in the first century, we're not living under the precise historical or redemptive setting that the disciples were at that time, nevertheless, the criteria for entering the kingdom always remain the same. Now, Jesus here gives us three criteria for entering the kingdom. First of all, doing the will of the Father. Doing the will of the Father. Jesus starts out by saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So there is no magic in saying the word Lord. It's not a talisman. It's not like abracadabra. It's not magic. Saying Jesus is Lord or calling Jesus is Lord that does not necessarily grant one access to the kingdom. It's not magic. Jesus says, it's actually the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's the first criteria. The second criteria is doing the law of God. Notice at the end of our text, those refused interests are those who practice lawlessness. Depart from me, Jesus says, you who practice lawlessness. Now, doing the will of the Father and doing the law are really two ways of saying the same thing. Remember, the law is all about loving God and loving neighbor. Loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's what Jesus says the law is all about. And that is the will of the Father. But there's a third criteria given in our text that's really the center of our text. And the other two, doing the will of God and doing the law of God, point to this third criteria. And that criteria is knowing and being known by the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing and being known by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus says in verse 23, to those who were turned away, I never knew you. I never knew you. So those in the first century, there were many in the covenant community of God who thought they were doing the will of God, who thought they were keeping the law of God, but they were not rightly related to Jesus Christ. And that's one of the main points of the New Testament, is that the will of God and the law of God begin with being properly related to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. There were people who came to Jesus and asked him what they could do to work the works of God. What can we do to work the works of God? And these were religious people. They were members of the covenant community. And Jesus answered them in this way. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's in John chapter 6. This is the work of God. You want to do the will of God. You want to do the things that God says to do. Jesus says, this is the work of God. This is where you start. You believe in Jesus Christ whom God has sent. And the same thing pertains to doing the law. So we see that the will of the Father points to believing in Christ. The same thing is true of the law. Paul says in Romans 10.4, Christ is is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Because when we hear end, we think termination. This is the termination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But the Greek word for end is not termination, it's telos. Telos means goal or destination. In other words, the purpose. So Christ is the telos. He's the goal. He's the destination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Jesus is who the law is all about. It's about loving God, and you can't begin to do that without being rightly related to God through Christ. It's about loving neighbor as self, and you can't begin to do that until you're rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. So the will of the Father and doing the law of God both point to this third criteria, knowing and being known by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are many today, just as there were many then in the first century, who think they are doing the word of God, the will of God in heaven by living a moral life or by doing good deeds of service or by even doing acts of religious devotion and sacrifice. And it's not that these are bad things, but they're not the same thing as knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and being known by Him. The first thing the Father tells us to do is to believe in His Son. Believe in my Son. Do you want to do my will? Do you want to keep the law? Do you want to truly be a good person? Here's what you do first. Believe in my son. That is first base. Believing in Jesus is not like the cherry on top of the Sunday. You want a cherry or no cherry? It's not the cherry on top. Believing in Jesus is the bowl that holds everything. All the good stuff. All the ice cream, the bananas, the fudge sauce, the, the whipped cream, the nuts, the cherry, everything. So don't kid yourself You haven't begun to do the will of God. You haven't begun to serve Him. You haven't begun to honor Him. You haven't even begun to know Him until you believe on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and know Him. 
And you don't know his son by doing religious things or hanging around the church. Now, serving God's a good thing. Coming to church is a good thing. It's where we should come. But just like calling Jesus Lord, Lord is not magic, coming to the church is not magic either. Walking in a garage does not make you a car. And walking in the church does not make you a Christian. You come to know the Lord Jesus by believing in Him. Now, what does it mean then to believe in Jesus? Well, first of all, you have to believe in the right Jesus. It means believing in Jesus as the prophets foretold Him, as He revealed Himself to be, and as the Scriptures record Him to be. So if I ask you if you know John Smith... And you say, yeah, I know John Smith, he plays baseball. And I say, no, I'm talking about John Smith, the doctor. The problem is there's lots of John Smiths. And how do we know one from another? We know one from another by what they do, how they live, what they have accomplished. And there are a lot of Jesuses. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. Joshua was a very popular name in Israel in the first century. There were lots of Joshua's. He was just one of them. There is a lot of Jesuses floating around today. There's Jesus the great man. Jesus the great teacher. Jesus the great example. But all of that is not enough. That's not the same Jesus that the Bible tells us about. The Bible tells us about Jesus Emmanuel. Jesus God with us. Born of a virgin. God made flesh. God the Son, become the Son of God, who lived the life we were all created to live, in perfect faith, love, and obedience to the Father, including allowing Himself to be framed and put on a Roman cross, thus heaping upon Himself all the blackness of evil and all the worst that men could do, all for the purpose of breaking the power of death and sin over us, all for the purpose of bringing us home to the Father, to make us His sons and daughters, princes and princesses, joint heirs with Christ of heaven and earth. I'm talking about Jesus whom the Father vindicated by raising Him from the dead, thus declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm talking about the Jesus who ascended into heaven, was given all power and authority in heaven and on earth, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. I'm talking about Jesus, the final word of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. I'm talking about the Jesus who said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's the Jesus we're called upon to believe in. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So when Muhammad comes along in the 7th century, or when Joseph Smith comes along in the 19th century and says, I have a new revelation. An angel has spoken to me. I have a new testament. We say, stop right there. Because if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, there is no possibility of more revelation. How can you add to the perfect? He is either the perfect revelation of God or he's not. He's either the exact representation of God's nature or he's not. He's either the radiance of God's glory or he's not. 
He's either the fullness and the perfection and the capstone of all revelation to where he can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, or he isn't. He's either the one who has done everything that is necessary for our salvation, or he isn't. And as soon as they say, I have a new revelation, I have a new testament, that's where we stop. Because in order to believe that, you have to not believe the Jesus the Bible tells us about. People who profess to believe in the Bible and say, now we have some more revelation. Now we have a new testament. It's like, wait a minute, I thought you said you believed the Bible. Well, I do, but, but we'll stop right there. Who does the Bible say Jesus is? If you believe whom the Bible says he is, there's not an angel coming to Muhammad or Joseph Smith. Moses pointed forward to a new covenant and a new prophet like him and greater than him. God spoke to Moses face to face. He says, There's going to, God's going to send you a prophet like me. The Old Testament speaks of a new covenant to come that's formed on, on better promises because it's God himself in the flesh who would cleanse us not with the blood of a bull of goats, which it says in Hebrews can't cleanse at all, but with the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect man. So the Old Testament points to a New Testament. It points to a new and greater Moses to come, the prophet that whoever did not believe in him would be utterly cut off from the people. The Old Testament points to that. The New Testament points to Christ, and that's it. There's no more prophet to come. There's nothing left to be done. He is the perfection. It points to Christ. It points to his finished work. So as soon as the actions and the words of Jesus Christ are inscripturated, and expounded in Scripture of the New Testament, folks, there's nothing left to say. And so when we meet people, and we want to share the gospel with them, and they start talking to us about another testament, that's where we stop, right there. And we need to talk about to them about the Jesus they say they believe in from the Bible. So Jesus, believing in Christ means, first of all, having the right Jesus. Because there's still lots of Jesuses who are out there. You have to have the right one. The second thing that believing means is casting yourself upon Jesus. That's the, that's the Hebrew concept of, of believing. It's the idea. It really means to roll, to roll over on something, to roll yourself onto something. We would say, cast yourself. It's like a boat pulling away from the dock and you run and you, you're either going for the boat or you're not. You can't keep one foot on the dock and go for the boat. You either jump with all you got or you don't jump at all. And that's what it means to believe in Christ. It's not enough to have an intellectual assent in Jesus James tells us the devils believe. The devils don't just believe, they know. They know. And furthermore, James says they tremble. The devils one-up most people in this world. Because the devils believe and they fear. 
There's many people in this world who, quote, believe, but don't fear, and there's many who don't believe at all. Believing means casting yourself upon Jesus. It means entrusting Him with your whole self. It means coming home to God through Christ and realizing this is where I belong. This is who I was created to be. This is what life was meant to be. This is not the denial of life. This is life. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And if you entrust Jesus with your whole self... What that means is you're not going to entrust yourself to yourself. If you trust Jesus with your whole self, you're not going to entrust yourself to yourself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, it says, Proverbs 3, 5, and lean not on your own understanding. You do both of those or you do neither. If you're going to trust in the Lord with all your heart, you will not lean on your understanding. You can't entrust yourself to yourself and entrust yourself to Christ. And everybody who is entrusting themselves to something other than Christ, they're ultimately entrusting themselves to themselves. So believing in Jesus means you have to have the right Jesus. You have to understand who he is, what he's done. And you have to entrust him with yourself. You have to trust in him. As we seek to apply these verses to ourselves today, one of the questions comes up, it comes back to assurance. Assurance. Because I, I hope, children, that, that this is sinking into you. That at the center of what Christian, Christianity is, at the center of what we do here every week, at the center of what your parents keep telling you about, at the center of what is in the scriptures, and everybody around you is saying, this is what life is all about. At the center of it is this relationship with a living person named Jesus Christ, God the Son, also the Son of God. And you may wonder, how can I have a relationship with someone I can't see? How can I know someone I can't see? Well, let me ask you this. How do you know someone you can see? You can't get inside them and know them that way. How do you know somebody you can see? You know them by spending time with them. You know them by doing things with them. You know them by what they say. You know them by talking to them and relating to them. And that's the same way that you can know the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get hung up over whether you can see him or not. You want to hear from Jesus. He speaks to you in the Word. The Word is the written form of what Jesus and who Jesus is. Jesus is the living Word. The Word of God is the written Word. Who Jesus reveals himself to be and what he says to you is the same as what he has said to you in his Word. So you listen to what he says and you speak to him. That's called prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. That's all it is. And so how can you know how can you know somebody you can see if you never talk to them and you never listen to them? You can't. And you also learn the Lord Jesus is by doing things with him. Now how do you do something with this? Now you don't do what I've read about somebody doing. 
Um, I mean, only in the modern church. But this person is talking about what their great relationship with Jesus was and um, how strong their faith was. So they go to Burger King and they order like two cheeseburgers, one for me, one for Jesus. And then they go sit down at a table with nobody there and then they give Jesus his cheeseburger and sit there and talk and no. No, don't, don't do that. The way that you do things with Jesus is you walk with him. Walking with him means you understand his will for you. You understand what he wants you to do. And it may involve something where you've got to set aside your own understanding because what you want to do is different. And the way you're thinking about it is different. It doesn't seem the way that the Word of God talks about to you. It seems like what's best for you or what's going to make you happy is this over here. Will you entrust yourself to your, yourself and to your own understanding? But Christ in His Word is saying, no, this is what I want you to do over here. The way you do something with Jesus is when you, at that point, understand what the issues are. And you say, okay, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. This is what you've said. This is what I'm going to do. And in faith, you do it. When you do that, when you live in that way, you're walking with Christ. You're doing things with him. And as you do that, you will have a growing sense of God's presence in your life of God's sovereignty and his blessing in your life. So how do you know Jesus whom you can't see? You listen to him. You go to his word. You speak to him. You go to him in prayer. You ask him to guide you. You ask him to bless him. And you do things with him. That is, you walk with him. You listen to him. You do what he says. You do it by faith. You trust him to bless. And you have a growing sense of God's presence in your life. Now, the other thing that I would like to offer to you as an application is this concept of rear sight, front sight that I mentioned to you a few weeks ago. And I use this analogy, you know, if you go someplace and they're going to teach you to shoot a gun, they teach you to look through the rear sight at the front sight. So you align the two, that way you know what you're aiming at and you know what you're going to hit. If all you have is a rear sight, you really don't know what you're aiming at, and you don't know what you're going to hit. And many people and many Christians, I'm afraid, we tend to go through life with a rear sight. We focus on one thing. One thing in the Bible, we have a rear sight, and then we end up shooting ourselves in the foot, shooting up the place, shooting up other people. The Bible always gives us a front sight. In a fallen world, as sinners, we need a rear sight and a front sight. So, for example... God gives us the Ten Commandments. He gives us the law of God. But then he also gives us the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so what are you focusing on? Are you focusing on the two great commandments? Okay, that's your rear sight. What's your front sight? The Ten. Or the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus exposits the Ten. Look through the rear sight. Never just look at the thing you're considering. Look through it at the front sight that the Bible gives you. If you're considering the Ten Commandments and doing the will of God, then look through that to the front sight. Love God, love your neighbor. Are you loving God? Are you loving your neighbor? Line the two up. Look through the one to the other, and then you know what you're aiming at. And I think that that's what we need to do here with these criteria that Jesus is giving us for entering the kingdom. Doing the will of God, practicing the law of God, and knowing Jesus Christ.
if we want to do the will of God, the first thing we need to do is believe in Jesus and seek a relationship with him, a discipleship relationship with him. If we believe in and know the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing we're going to want to do is to please the Father, to do his will. And where do we go to find his will? We go to his word. We go to his law. So use this rear sight, front sight method. So as you walk with God, as you're living the Christian life on a day-to-day basis, if you're thinking about the Father's will, if you're thinking about uh, pleasing him, if that's what's foremost in your mind, you're kind of thinking about that, okay, that's your rear sight. Don't look at it, look through it. What's your front sight? Your front sight is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're thinking about doing the will of God, measure yourself by how well you know the Lord Jesus. How are you walking with him? What are you doing to pursue him? What are you doing to develop your relationship with him? Okay? So that's what you focus on if you're thinking about doing the will of God. If you're focus, if you're if you're thinking a lot about your relationship with the Lord Christ, then look through it to the front side and measure yourself by doing the will of the Father. How much do you want to please the Father? Is it your delight to please him? In every area, do you want to know his will and do it? And when it comes to knowing his will, are you being informed by the two great commandments and the ten commandments? That's how we measure ourselves. Now, this is exactly what we see the Apostle John telling Christians to do in his first epistle. He says these things are all written so that we can know that we have eternal life with, uh, with, uh, in Jesus Christ. We can know that we have fellowship with the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he keeps telling us, when you want to know one thing, don't stare at the thing. Look through that at the front sight that God gives us. And so he says, um, if, if you want to know that you know Christ, ask yourself, do you keep his commandments? If you want to know if you love God, ask yourself, do you love your brothers and sisters? See, because the difference between loving Jesus and loving your brothers and sisters is simply the difference between loving the Christ you can see and loving the Christ you can't see. See? The way we think is, loving Jesus, I have no problem with. Loving the people I see down here, these sinners with all kinds of problems and hang-ups, them I have a problem with. But John turns it around on us. He says, he, how, how, can the love, how can we love Jesus whom we can't see if we don't love our brothers and sisters whom we can see? In other words, how can you love a Jesus whom you can't see? If you don't love the Jesus, you can see. Because Jesus is in all these sinners who are here. Jesus is in us. Okay? And so he's always saying, don't stare at the thing that you want to know. Look through the thing at the front sight that God has given us. And so I urge you to do that and to measure how much you're doing God's will by your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and to measure your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by how much you're seeking to do God's will in earnest.
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.